Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jason. This is Witches, Whiskey, and Wit, the show where I talk to witches, drink lots and lots of whiskey, and things go like down as the show goes on because I get more and more whiskey in me. It's problematic. It is what it is, though. You know, what are you going to do? It's 2020. You have to. You have to take advantage of things in 2020. There's no other way around it, you know? It's just that kind of year. I hope you're doing well tonight. It's great to have you here with us. I'm Jason. Tonight's guest is Ashley, the Gardenarian Librarian. I love saying the Gardenarian Librarian. I could say that over and over again because it just sounds so cool. She's there on the line I can hear you. I know that you're there. Do do do. Uh oh. Here we go. Oh. Hey, there's a sound. Sound. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. There we go. Sorry about that. I tried to get all fancy and use a fancy microphone, and we saw that went. <laughs> okay. It happens. I I myself pretty hard. I, I like people in the middle of the show and shit. It's not very professional. <laughs> yeah, my I can see that my, or at least you sound a little garbled on my end. Um, oh, no. Let me, I have, I have an idea. Okay. Maybe I should try calling into the show. You sound okay. You know, okay. sometimes there's always a lag. It never quite works. You know, I invested in a super nice microphone for all the good it has done. Apparently, it's no good. <laughs> you know, it, it is yeah. what it is. All day, I, I have been, I have been saying gardenarian librarian because I love saying that. I love the alliteration of it. You know, and I'm sure you check it as a moniker because it rhymes. Not in spite of it rhyming. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to hear? I guess the very short story of how it was born, at least that um, that particular name. So, a little over a year ago, I was going to, or I just attended the Free Spirit Gathering with my best friend, and we were on the way back from the gathering. And we had met a couple of authors, some that I was just kind of star-eyed about, at least in the moment. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, what if there was some way that I could talk about librarianship and how it connects to my spirituality, you know, which is Gardnerian Wicca. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, what would I do as a librarian who's Gardnerian? And I was like, holy shit. The Gardnerian <laughs> Librarian, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not magic what I created there, um, but, you know, it's a fun story nonetheless. So in the real world, you are a librarian, right? I mean, you're not completely out. I mean, I, I call you Ash. I know you're like your real name, but you don't go by that online. So like, you are a librarian in your civilian mundane life. Like, I am. Being, a librarian is mundane. I'm not sure that it is. 
It depends on which library or what type of library you work in. But yes, I am a legit librarian in my mundane life. Um, I have a master's degree in library science. Not a lot of people know that a master's degree is needed in order to work as a librarian in academic institutions, at least. There are public institutions, um, like public libraries, for example, or uh, secondary schools that may not require a degree like that. But for what I do, yes, it does require a degree. I've been working in libraries for close to a decade, but I've been a professional librarian for about two and a half years. You know, you're not the first librarian I know with a master's degree. It's like most librarians I know have master's degrees because it's so required. And I think there's this idea that librarians, oh, they just check out books and stock shelves. So what does a librarian do beyond that? And I'm sure you don't even do that. You have people for that. <laughs> I know it, it does sound, it would make me sound pretty sure it was like, oh, Jason, we have people for that. Um, but I it is it true. I said it for you, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's true. So um, that is correct. As a librarian, at least what I do, I mainly do instructional librarianship. So I teach college kids how to do research and usually it's research that is pertaining to a project or a research paper that their professor has given them and they, you know, they need some sources on it and they need access to our databases, which, you know, give the best ones. So um, oftentimes I'm asked into uh, classrooms where I teach from, you know, the beginner research methods to more advanced research methods depending on the assignment. And I might teach them how to use databases. Maybe we'll even learn how to do proper research in Google, Google Scholar even, something like that. But yeah, so that's a good portion of my job. But there are all different types of librarians. There are librarians that prefer to work in public libraries. And those are the libraries that serve their communities, local communities. And what they do is gonna be very different from what I do because of the community that they serve. So while a part of my job, if I'm backing somebody up, I might be checking in and out books. The community that I'm not serving are those individuals that are underprivileged um, or that have a wide range of privileges, social privileges, I mean. So in a public library, you will be serving homeless individuals, wealthy individuals, and everything in between. But the needs are very, very different. So one of the things I love about reading you write online is you kind of critique books and sources and just, you know, and then give a judgment like whether or not it's trustworthy or whether or not it's a good source. And I love that because I am, I'm not an academic books with footnotes though because I wish I was an academic but I'm far too lazy and so like you I prefer good books and good sources and the pagan community seems to have always had a problem with that so what makes what makes a book a good source how can you evaluate a book to say that oh yes I should use this or I should talk about the history that this book says at dinner with parents <laughs> 
you know, what, what makes for something that you can trust? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And that is by far the most common issue that I come up against when I am teaching young adults how to do research. And it's also an issue that I encountered in public libraries as well with individuals encountering news sources and the reliability of those things. So I know you know this, on my Instagram account, I've used what's called the crap test to analyze different types of sources for their reliability when it comes to uh, whether or not they are a good source, one that I would personally use or one that I would recommend to another person if they were doing research on that subject. And what the CRAP test stands for are uh, five different ways of analyzing a source. The first being currency. So this talks about the timeliness of the source when it was published, right? And the second part of the CRAP test is the relevance. So how exactly this information fits the research needs that you have. And the currency can uh, factor into that. You know, if it's a really old source, is that going to give you the most relevant information that you need in your resource? Or are you going to need something that's a bit more current? Are you date? telling me that the golden bow is no longer relevant for footnotes? <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I didn't mean to I, old shit is still good shit. I, you know, if, there's, if I don't go down in history saying anything else, old shit is still good shit. Um, just because a source is an older source doesn't mean that it's no longer relevant to whatever it is that you're researching. So Golden Bow, you know, um, a beautiful work of prose, while it may not be looked at for its historical accuracy, can still be appreciated for its artfulness and for its creative work. And it influenced people of its day. So how can we say that that book was never relevant. So relevancy can be something that's relevant now, or when looking at the historical context of it, you can see that it was relevant then as well. It just put me in my place, didn't you? Wow, that was okay. good. <laughs> so that's R. What a, what? Oh, you want the rest of the app? Okay. So the first A uh, is for authority. And this is who wrote whatever crap you're reading, right? These individuals don't have to have letters behind their name in order to be considered authorities of their subjects, but it certainly helps. And really the only place that that would really matter if somebody has a degree on whatever subject they're talking about is if you are doing academic research. Otherwise, you might want to take in somebody's experience in whatever field that they're talking about. And that can also lend itself to the um, authority of a source. So the next A, uh, the long A, is accuracy. And this talks about the uh, factual information that you would find in a source. This is a little bit easier to determine in newspaper articles or magazine articles. And that's because authors will state a fact and either they will cite the source of their information or they won't. 
And that's a pretty clear indicator as to whether or not this source is accurate. So let's say, for example, I'm having a conversation with my grandma and she spouts off some fact about some orange politician that we all know to either love or hate. Um, and she does not say where she got that information from. Let's say that she, you know, uh, she was like, oh, well, they said that, you know, X percentage of people can only do this thing because of X, Y, and Z. Um, but she never says who they are. So she doesn't cite her source. She doesn't tell me where she got her information. Then I would not consider my grandma to be a very reliable source of information. Um, so back up your information, back up your source. That's really the point there. And then the very last letter of the crap test, purpose. So the question here that you want to ask yourself is why exactly does this source of information exist? What purpose does it serve, right? Does it serve uh, to uh, be entertaining for people or does it serve to um, give factual information about a particular subject? So there, what is the reason that this information exists? So putting all those things together, I think, um, and I have successfully been able to do this on my own many times, uh, I think that you can use this test to analyze any source, particularly if it's a, a nonfiction source of information or source of information, yeah, that, um, and it's very reliable in that way. So, yeah, with these powers combined, it's like Captain Planet. <laughs> oh, wow. This is just the first Captain Planet reference ever in the You're history welcome. of this show. I mean, <laughs> in the show, I think. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I was just waiting for Captain Planet to get over with so I could get to pro wrestling. You know, that's that's how that works <laughs> yeah. for me. So, I know. I, I both loved and hated Captain Planet. <laughs> yeah, it was such a great idea. It was poorly executed. Indeed. Yeah. There a lot of cartoons of that era. That's a whole other story. I could probably <laughs> just talk about cartoons for an hour, but we won't. So maybe we will on like a special like cartoon episode of the show. Then we'll have you back and we'll just talk about cartoons. Anyways, so it is popular to criticize pagan publishers in the yeah. pagan world. Ones that are criticized the most tend to be Llewellyn and Samuel Weiser, the two publishers that really particularly cater to our community that are of a size. I mean, there are some smaller ones, you know, especially kind of in this, you know, era of let's spend $80 on a hardcover kind of thing, with traditional <laughs> witchcraft. And I'll admit I buy all those books. I can't like mock it. I, I buy them. Sorry, oh, my wife's always books. Yeah, it's like Troy books. Yep. Anytime Troy books has something that comes out, you know, oh, I'm, I'm there and I get it and then I usually hate it, but I still get it, you know. <laughs> It's part of that Gardnerian thing. Anyway, so are the criticisms that we hear constantly, Llewellyn and Weiser, in your opinion, are they valid in 2020, 2021, as we record this in December? Oh, hell yeah. I feel as though if they weren't yeah. valid, how are they selling all of these goddamn books? Uh, publishers are not there to you know, um, be the gatekeepers as to, oh, this is a good book or this is a good source of information and this one is not. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that Llewellyn or Weiser or Troy or whatever has never published a shitty book, right? There is certainly evidence of that. But, of course, I mean, there's a whole there's Celtic magic out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. It. What I will say is that, you know, though they may have published some shitty books, there are also some excellent books that come through both of those publishing companies. You know, they're there to serve the people that buy the books. <laughs> you know, and if what people want is Celtic magic, or um, you know, that chick on Amazon that maybe exists or maybe does not exist, but apparently self-publishes like 10 books a year. If that's what the people want, that's what they're going to give them. Now, there is a, what I imagine, you work with publishers, what I imagine would be a certain threshold um, by which they wouldn't publish a book if it looked like it was awful. Um, but, I mean, you can't you can't expect every book to come out of a publishing company to be I don't know, 100% amazing in every regard. Um, I guess as a Llewellyn author, I'm really close to the criticisms. And mm. a, a book like Transformative Witchcraft, which was my fourth book, has over 200 citations in it. Yeah. And my editor is like really particular about that. She's like, you have to cite this source. You know, I'm like writing something and you know, I know that the Witchcraft Research Association had a dinner in 1964, and it's the first time anyone had ever publicly uttered the Wiccan read. You know, I know that as just something that I keep in my brain. You know, and my editor's like, no, you have to put a footnote for that. And I'm like, isn't this common knowledge? Come on, every witch should know this. Anyway, but I mean, the criticism seems sometimes just so stuck in the 90s. You know, like, there were bad books. 90s, but things have really changed since 1994, and there seems to just be this whole group of people who haven't quite got that. I guess it's not really a question. I'm going to throw it out as a question. To me, it's just so frustrating sometimes. Yeah, you know, the evolution of those publishing companies, especially, you know, think of Llewellyn has changed dramatically since its inception. Um, and I was, because I'm a, a weirdo, a nerd, I don't know, I was kind of taking a look at the different types of books that were being published, um, you know, on subjects like Wicca, witchcraft, paganism, you know, occult and all this good stuff. Uh, just kind of taking a look at the past few decades to see how they have evolved. And I think Llewellyn has responded to the evolution of the needs of the people that are buying these books. So, you know, I'm a millennial witch. I was learning about Wicca and witchcraft in the late 90s, early 2000s. I first learned about the word Wicca from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, <laughs> so the books that we had then, they were catering to that generation of witches and the things that we were interested, you know, in. Whereas the books that are being published now are really reflective of the needs of the witches, the young adults that are coming up today. And I, are, I think that they are doing just that. I think they're doing a pretty damn good job. Um, so I know that you guys get a lot of crap um, for being Llewellyn authors. 
I think people that are maybe my age, maybe a little bit older, see some of the works that they were putting out in the early 2000s as being softer or less reliable sources of information on Wicca and witchcraft, both of those things. Wicca also dominated that entire genre, that publishing company too, during that time period. And so they've got that bad taste in their mouth as to what Llewellyn is and who the authors are that represent that publishing company. Yeah. Do you think uh, part of it, I guess, too, is I think that the pagan community is pretty smart. Hell yeah. I'm not sure that we all have advanced degrees. I would say that many pagans are probably underemployed, you know, when they make less, maybe they choose to or something. Uh, but do you think that, like, kind of the reaction by Llewellyn to put in footnotes and that sort of thing is because we're dealing with a well-educated group of individuals? I say it's that, but it's also to cover their ass. Um, <laughs> plagiarism is straight up illegal, <laughs> you know. And I wrote a I wrote a post about this this week about about plagiarism um, and the effects that that can have on a person, but also a community too. But it is straight up illegal. And I think now that more and more information is being churned out and created about and on witchcraft and paganism and, you know, all of these subcultures within our communities, um, they need to cover their asses and uh, defend the creative work of the people that are publishing with them. So you having been around in the pagan community for, you know, a decent chunk of time, you do have a lot of information in your brain that's common knowledge to you and perhaps the people that you frequently, you know, converse with and things of that sort. But for the newer witches that are coming up in this generation, they don't have that knowledge, you know, <laughs> in a sad sort of way, we are shifting into being like the elders <laughs> of our community. Oh. <laughs> you know, um, the, the information that we have of our communities you know, the memories that we have of these things, they weren't there for that. They weren't even alive for that. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm 97. You know, <laughs> yeah. I I feel like my entire life as a pagan, I have struggled to sit at the adult table. Like, you know, even even after writing seven books or whatever, I feel like I don't get to sit at the adult table yet. I feel like a, like a child compared to a lot of years. I mean... I know you're a millennial. As a Generation Xer, it's always felt like I had been sort of pushed aside and discarded by the older generation of pagans. And that's not everybody. I mean, certainly there are some terrific, old, like baby boomer pagans, like Selena Fox is the shit and is yeah. one of the nicest, most progressive people. But, you know, it's still, anytime I hear anybody think that I might be an elder, it just makes me laugh and feel very <laughs> uncomfortable. I know. Yeah, it's true. It's like um, your generation and perhaps even mine will probably always sit at the play school plastic table, you know, at the wedding. So it does. It really feels like that, you know. It and, and I know that I have friends who are millennials. They're like, when do I get to sit at the table? Like, I'm in Generation X. I want to sit there before you do. Jesus Christ. 
Slow down. <laughs> I know. I'm with God. you. I feel your pain. You know, I'm with you. However, I want to sit down there. I've been here for quite a while. Man, young grasshoppers trying to hop too soon. It's, it's, it's well, um, some of them should be hopping up there. I mean, <laughs> I, age is not necessarily a, I don't know, a measure of worth sometimes, uh, especially when age prohibits you from adapting. One of the things I love about Selena is that she's relevant and current and doesn't have, you know, transphobic beliefs and things that I sometimes see amongst pagans of a certain age. Not all of them by any means, but, you know, there are some in sort of the elder status that have really disappointed me over the last eight or nine years. And, you know, that's neither here nor there, and we're really off topic and sorry, but, you know, sometimes I just think about it and it makes me sad, you know. Well, it's true. I mean, they are essentially handing down a legacy and there are going to be individuals that will hang on every word that they say, you know, just as you will have those individuals that hang on every word that you say and every opinion that you have, they will take it as their own, right? They will just adopt it. Um, So to have those individuals that are of a generation that, we assume to be either rightly or wrongly so to be more conservative than later generations to have those individuals really stand out as being more progressive than their peers. um, You know, it really gives us something to work toward and off of and perhaps eases. um, I think the word I'm looking for is like some of the pain that maybe was inherited as a result of, those individuals being the way that they are. I just really worry. I watch some people like kind of take jumps on their own legacy, by yeah. being unable to admit being wrong, and that's really sad to see. And, yeah, you know, and it's almost like you see people flailing in the water. You know, it's like help me, and you try to help them, and then they like throw the the you know life vest or right back at you. you know, they just don't care. <laughs> It's like no, not like no, that. I'm going to double down. I'm going to double down. <laughs> okay, you're going to drown. I'm really sorry about that. Like, really, um, I just want your attention while I drown. Apparently, you know, and it's such a shame. It is. It's really my heart. So I assume that you read a lot. Perhaps you know you you know you see books every day and you just are fucking tired of them and you don't want to read when you get home. But I'm just going to assume for a minute that you are reader and as a librarian I your opinion you know probably doesn't count more than anyone else's but to me I think it counts more than anyone else's so I'm interested in your 10 favorite pagan books classic okay you know newer whatever works for you I'm interested in your 10 favorite and why those are your favorites my 10 favorite i'm gonna have to create a list right here okay no it's really unfair all right but okay my 10 we can we can just get down to five if that would be easier maybe we'll just do five yeah okay all right let's do this my i can very right off the top of my head i can say drawing down the moon has got to be one of my favorites um what i love about it is that it is 
an excellent anthropological, but also, well, no, I would say probably more sociological analysis of what paganism and the evolution of witchcraft and Wicca in the United States has looked like over time. And that was very useful. I read it the first time back in, I want to say maybe 98, 99, something like that. Um, and I know that there was a revised edition that was put out just a few years ago. And one of the reasons that it makes my top five, I guess if we're going just for five now, is the fact that it was revised at all. Because it's a book that is chock full of factual information um, and information that back, you know, now, what, 20 something years later would be very dated. The fact that Adler took the time to go back, rework that information, make sure that it was up to date, and then republish it means that that work was deeply cared for um, and it's more accurate as a result, at least the newer edition is. So definitely that one would be my number one. I know um, that, you know, after she published it in 79, I know that there was an update in 86. Yeah. And that was the edition that I first bought. And it had like a little bit after certain chapters, you know, like this tradition no longer exists. Or Oberon and Morning Glory went to go and hunt for mermaids after creating goat unicorns. You know, and it was <laughs> really fascinating to read all of that. And one of the things I guess about new editions of books, and I'll admit this, is I don't read the new editions most of the time. You know, like I have that 86 version of Drawing Down the Moon, and that's kind of where my familiarity with the book sort of stops. And now I'm just like, maybe I should go and read the final edition. Did you ever get to meet Margot? No, I didn't. Have you? She, I did. I got to meet Margot on a couple of occasions. My first time was at a Pantheacon in California, which is just right up the street from where I live now. And I had done a Led Zeppelin and the Occult workshop that Margot Adler apparently went to. And she lived in New York City. I lived in Michigan at the time. We're waiting uh, to get on a plane or something. And this woman walks up to me and she's like, hi, my name's Margot. And I just oh really enjoyed your workshop. And then, like, slowly the gears in my brain started, like, you know, turning. And I was like, oh, my God, you're Margo Adler. And then I couldn't oh speak. God. You know, it was, re it was really embarrassing. But she was the nicest person. Like, if you read the book and you thought, wow, this is a really nice person, she was a super nice person. Aww. Okay, I'm yeah. both jealous but also so happy that you got to meet a person like that. I mean, I also, you know, embarrassed myself completely and felt like an idiot. And then I couldn't, like, meet her gaze again while we were waiting. Oh, God. <laughs> because everybody, like, who had gone to Pantheacon that year from the Midwest or the East Coast, they were all on the same plane to Minnesota, which was at the time a place that you went and transferred planes. So, like, every, like Selena was on that plane and Alicia Gallo, who's the acquisitions editor of Llewellyn, and Margot, and then there's just me, like embarrassed, you know. To, to, yeah, you know, I'm still that way with people, but I just thought you would like that story and gives you more time to talk about your five. 
Damn right it does. You saw right through me, Jason Mankey. <laughs> I am joking. a kind. I am a kind host on this. Um. Well, let's see. Okay. My. I wouldn't. I'm, these are in no particular order. I want to make that very clear to whoever's listening to me right now. I'm not ranking these, with the exception of drawing down the moon. That one really is number one. Number one. But another one that I really enjoy um, would be. Dealing with Deities, and this one's by Raven Caldera. Um, wow. I, yeah. Wildcard. Did not expect that answer. Well, I never – I don't know if I've ever really had a conversation with somebody else who has read that book, <laughs> but I first came across it – it was last year at Free Spirit. I met Raven, and he gave this amazing – what I thought was an amazing workshop – on um, working with deities and what that might look like in, in all of its kind of various stages and forms. And there was this book that he had written and I picked it up and I was like, man, this looks dry. But as a high priestess and as an individual that has tried her damnedest to connect with deity over the years, or try to help or assist other people in connecting with deities of their own. I thought this book was just so succinct, very, well, you know, practicals in the title, but it was very practical. And it was pagan oriented, which I don't think that there's enough, this is my personal opinion, enough um, books or information published on how to approach theology if you are pagan. So I thought it was a well-done book. Now, granted, a lot of it um, was written from Raven's own personal gnosis, but he doesn't pretend that it's anything other than that, right? Um, but as long if, as you're you know, open and honest about that, I, mean, I don't think yeah. that ever should matter, right? Exactly. That's the way that I feel about it. It's like you don't have to, you know... Um, always work off of the work of another author or something like that to try to legitimize your work. Personal gnosis is legitimate information. So, but yeah. So Raven, that was, has been, Raven has been very critical of Wicca over the years. So I was really surprised to hear <laughs> you say, for you to, to, you know, bring that one up. Yeah. And, I guess I don't mind if other people are going to criticize my tradition. Like I'm, that doesn't make me butthurt one bit. I mean, it sucks to see how often Wicca is railed on in the community. Um, And certainly, geez, like after 2010, it was just getting pummeled there for a bit. Kind of sucks sometimes, but I get it. (laughs) I accept it. Though I guess if I stopped talking to everyone who bashed Wicca, I mean, the people I talked to would be very small. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And you know what? If we can't criticize our own spirituality or tradition, then maybe we should rethink uh, being a part of it. Well, I mean, one of the things about about Wicca, I guess, though, is that I think it's changing a lot right now. But I think that some people are slow to realize that it's changing. And there are people who aren't embracing the change, and we talked about that before. 
But yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge amount of us. I know that most of us in the Gen X millennial category are, you know, even in gardenerian circles, and we're supposed to be like the most, you know, I guess uptight, conservative, <laughs> you know, always upset group of people. We're like, no, anybody can fucking do this, right? I mean, it's, we're, we're open for everybody, you know, trying to create a better mousetrap, so to speak. So, but I mean, it, it takes a while for people to sort of realize that. So, okay, your third book. Okay, my third book. All right, this one um, also recently published just within the past couple of years. Uh, you know it quite well, but it's Traditional Wicca by Thorne Mooney. So. Of course. The reason that I think that this this book is great is that it was much needed for people seeking traditional Wiccan experiences or covens. Um, And books like that just haven't existed until now. So I really feel as though Thorne took it upon herself to kind of break through a glass ceiling a little bit, at least with that. and I thought it was an impressive piece of work. So definitely my third favorite book. Like, again, no particular order. <laughs> She's, Thorne is absolutely one of my favorites in the world. And I don't, like, hide that. And most people, like, if they listen to my podcast, listen to episodes are always the Thorne Mooney episodes because we just talk about people and get drunk together. And it's amazing. <laughs> but that book, you know, it's the Seeker's book for people who traditional Wicca slash witchcraft, but I, I think there's so much more to it. You know, I, as somebody who practices BGW, I mean, I found spiritual insights the whole way through the book. I did. It, it's just, and she's such a great writer too. You know, yeah. sometimes books have good information and the writer's just eh, and sometimes the writer is terrific and they have nothing to say. And you read it anyways, <laughs> because the prose is good. But Thorne does both at the same time. I just wish she wrote more books. Yes, I agree. I think her style of writing puts the reader at ease. Like it, it feels conversational, uh, very self-aware, which I appreciate. And I think certainly the generation of witches that are coming up today who are also known for being extremely self-aware can really appreciate her style of writing. Um, so I, yeah, I certainly agree with you on that. And I, I look forward to more books that she writes. I just finished her second one. So I'm very excited. Her problem is, is that she writes longhand and then has to go and type it, you know, and that just seems exhausting to me. And it seems <laughs> like you're writing. The, <laughs> and it feels like you're writing the book three or four times. Like you could be much faster if you just sat down at the keyboard, Thorne. Book number four. All right, number four. And this is me not sucking up to you, but because I really do feel that this is a good piece of work, uh, Transformative Witchcraft. And you know that I've said before, it's kind of a librarian's dream how much you cited your sources. And I know that you said your editor pushed you to do that, but it's really meaningful when you are talking about the information that you are. You are giving a lot of history in the beginning and you were stating a lot of facts, dude. So if you're going to do that and you did this rightly, correctly, um, cite your sources, you did just that. But then the information that you gave on 
various experiences a person might be seeking or um, are having or have had, I thought you did that very well. And you talked about the different ways that people could approach that and maybe perhaps not the most popular ways that people have been told about. So, Well, thank you. You're now my favorite guest ever. You know, no one's ever said that my book is one of their favorites. So, yeah. Yeah. And I love uh, that book. And I will say, in defense of my editor, I cited all the way through that. The only time she really yelled at me was about the Witchcraft Research (laughs) Association dinner, and which is why it stands out so much in my brain. Never forget. Like the one thing I didn't cite because I just assumed that no one had to cite that because I'm kind of a nerd. All right, number five. Okay, number five. This one is difficult for me because I I like multiple books that this author has written. But um, I guess I could say, okay, insert number five, anything that Doreen Valiente has written. (laughs) Um, Fair. Yeah, I think uh, she's so uh, multi-talented in what she writes. So whether it's prose, poetry, nonfiction, I, I don't know, maybe it's the style of her writing that I really gravitate toward, but it's beautiful. So she's a beautiful writer, um, but she's also written quite a few books on the history of witchcraft, which I think following our beloved Gerald Gardner's um, books on his anthropological understandings of uh, the history of witchcraft. I think Doreen's was very much needed uh, as a follow-up. Her rebirth of witchcraft, which is her memoir, uh, basically, is one of my 10 favorite books ever. And I felt bad when Philip Heselton released his biography of Doreen because her memoir is just so good. Yeah. can't be improved on, right? I mean, everything that you really want, other than maybe the last 20 years of her life, and maybe maybe if you're a voyeur, some details of her private life, all of it basically was covered in rebirth, and just the way she told stories was just yeah. so good. If you want to know about Robert Cochran, just go read the Doreen chapter <laughs> about Robert Cochran. And she brings his rituals to life in a way that no one else who's written about him ever really has. Right. Even some of the Gardner stuff. If you want to know about Operation Kona Power, read (laughs) what Doreen had to say about Operation Kona Power. Because taking notes about everything Gerald said, you know, especially in those early years of witchcraft. Neither here nor there. And I don't usually go, oh, sorry, go right ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it's kind of like Plato writing about Socrates, right? Like Socrates will probably never write about himself. I mean, we know that Gerald Gardner wrote and we know that Robert Cochran wrote, but the way that she would write about people that at one point in her life were mentors to her um, and it was reportive, but it was, um, I don't know, just very real. Like there was no beating around the bush, no shit about it, <laughs> you know, Doreen Valiente. Um, well, I mean, if you write yourself, I mean, you probably either hold yourself in a highlight or you loathe yourself. 
there's probably very little in between. And, you know, Doreen is like, well, this is how this person actually worked, and this is what they did. You know, she says really nice things about Gardner in her book. And for the most part, when I was starting out, a lot of stuff about Gerald was just so mean-spirited. And even in his lifetime, there's a lot of mean-spirited sort of, you know, writings about the guy. But, you know, she was like, you know, when I met him, he was a little bit younger and still strong, and he had these tattoos on his arm, and he read <laughs> the Book of Shadows, and he led the ritual, and it was powerful. And you get to see why maybe people in 1951, 52, 53, 54, decided that they were going to be witches and follow this guy. Because by the time you read about him just a few years later, who have diminished physically to a point where it's really hard to understand why people would follow him. Right. You know, and she just, oh, and you, you kind of get it, I guess, when she like, writes about one thing, which is neither here nor there and means nothing. There is one other witch who shares a birth date with Doreen Valiente <gasps> on February 4th, and that is me. Oh, are you, are you like Doreen only partially reincarnated? No, I am not <laughs> Doreen partially reincarnated. But out of all of the early witchcraft authors, the one that I'm attra- – I guess attracted makes it sound like it's some sort of sexual thing. But the, the one that I feel closest to Doreen, not Gerald, it's Doreen. Because she had so many interests and was always looking for sort of the next vista, so to speak, which is why she worked with so many people. And yeah. I love that about her. She was always exploring. And as she got older, she, you know, she got more progressive with her politics. She was always accepting of new things. And I think it's a kind of way to model your, you know, just keep searching and keep getting better and trying to improve as a person. Oh, I love Doreen so much. Yeah, it does say a lot. I mean, for an individual that, you know, she didn't let the power of tradition hold her back in her spiritual practices at all and the things that she sought. So if something, if she outgrew something, if it no longer served her, um, she graciously put it down and she picked up the next thing that would challenge her. And I think her taking up that mantle really set the stage for people that came after her. So it's certainly something to look up to. Well, I mean, I also think that most of us who practice witchcraft, even if we're a part of the specific tradition, you know, like we're both Gardnerians, but that's not all we do. Right. You know, I have an eclectic coven. I read all the traditional witchcraft books and all that stuff. You know, you use what works and you take what works, and that's great. And that's kind of what Doreen was. She never just sort of stopped. She was always looking for new information and new things. And I think that is how most of us actually practice the craft, uh, you know, despite what others might think. So, I agree with okay. you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This has been really fun. Like, sometimes I've had people on the show, and I think they're going to be the best guests and then best guests. Sorry, best guest. Got the T there. The best guest, and 
you know, all their answers are like one sentence long. And oh my God, the time just crawls. This has been <laughs> really fun. This has been great. So now I'm going to put you really on the spot. Oh shit. What are, and I'll, I'll limit it to three. What are the three worst witchcraft books you've ever read? Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. I know. And if it makes you more comfortable, you can only list books by dead people if that will help. Oh, fuck. Oh, um, oh, sorry. Am I allowed to say the F word on this show? <laughs> fuck yeah. That's fine. All right. Fucking great. Um, okay. Can I just say anything written by Lisa Chamberlain on Amazon is utter crap. Have you and read I, all of her books? Have you, have I've you read her? I've not read all her books. Um, I have, I can't remember where I was able to like online access one of her, like, I don't know, they all sound the same after a while, but in looking at the content there, doesn't cite her sources, it's all rehashed material from current or dead authors. Um, I don't even know if this person's a real person after all, but it's just really bad. It's not good. It's not informative. It's not reliable information. Um, you could get much better information and better writing, frankly, in other books. So anything written, <laughs> I'm going to just, you know, wash across so, the board. Here is the Lisa Chamberlain story. Uh-oh, and help. The Lisa Chamberlain story. So about a year ago on Pathios, Thorn Mooney and Kelvin, who wrote a great book about traditional witchcraft uh, for Llewellyn, they were talking, they both were writing about Lisa Chamberlain and whether or not she was a real person. And most of the time, if you are a pagan author or witchcraft author, you're kind of public in a way. You go to festivals, you have an presence, you teach classes, people know who you are. And I think that's really great because I think it allows for accountability. And some of them questioned whether or not Lisa Chamberlain was real. And then her partner, like, just jumped on them. Like, oh, oh my God, how dare you question whether or not Lisa is a real person? And then I wrote a piece about authors. And most of us are out there in the public because it allows us to be held accountable, right? Like, Jason right. has long blonde hair, and you, you know who he is. If you're at a festival, he probably has a scotch in his hand. And, yeah, <laughs> it's just how it rolls. And, like, her partner, again, attacked me. And we had, like, kind of this long, evil conversation. And she left, like, long notes on the Patheos Pagan Facebook how terrible we all were for doubting oh. the reality of Lisa Chamberlain. And I've been told by someone in publishing that it's a, that she is a real person. But it is. It's a really different model than what most of us who write in the witchcraft world do. Even people who don't have a lot of social media accounts, we still know that they're real. They still do things in their local communities or whatever. And Lisa Chamberlain is kind of like a cipher. Like nobody nobody knows, right? Like I could go to a festival and not know that Lisa Chamberlain is standing next to me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I will – happily put my own foot in my mouth. You know, if this person, you, you know, you say that they're a real person, that they've been, their partner kind of spoke for their interest and that's great. Um, 
I think then what I could say then about their work is that they write in absolutes, like this is a fact, this is Wicca, this is how we practice, this is what we do, which is, I don't think, an appropriate way to talk about a spiritual practice um, in black and white terms, I guess. It's it's really so different. Of course, the person that attacked all three of us could be a collection of people who write together as Lisa Chamberlain. I mean, it's hard to say. We'll never right. know for sure. <laughs> I remember when it was happening, the person like obviously wasn't using their real name on Facebook. You know, it was just too perfectly pagan, that name that they were using. And I thought, yeah. well, I was a real douchebag. Well, no offense to douches. <laughs> If I was a real douchebag, I would report this person for, like, mm. not their real name, which you can do on Facebook. But that's just not really how I go. So right. that's my Lisa Chamberlain story. So number one for you. We have two more to go. <laughs> oh, God. I feel like for each one of these books, you're going to be like, well, actually, I know, I know. this. No, no. <laughs> that's probably the only one. It's probably the only but one. this is the only way that we learn, right? So I can have my opinions about something – but if I'm never met with another person that has opinion about it, whether it's the same or otherwise, then I can never change it. So I am happy well, to take That's, I think, the problem with Lisa Chamberlain, though, is the things that we would normally use to verify a person's identity are not there. Right. Right? For people to think that's not a real person makes complete sense to me because they don't have social media accounts. Because right. they don't go to large pagan festivals because they're not putting a thousand pictures of themselves on Instagram. Uh, so it's it's completely different. And I think the doubt is justified because how they have chosen to write. And maybe they need to keep their anonymity to some degree. And that's their business. And whatever works for them, I, I wish them luck. I don't really, I'm not going to get upset about it. But right. people doubt your existence. There's usually a reason for that, and I think it's a pretty valid reason in her case. Yeah, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, each one of us has our own levels of comfort when it comes to being out of the broom closet, and um, no matter where we are on that scale, we can respect that, certainly. All right, number two. All right, no more talking about <laughs> Lord Lisa right. Chamberlain, number two. All right, number two. Hopefully this one won't get me into trouble, but <laughs> The Meaning of Witchcraft by Gerald Gardner. Um, oh, I'm with you. It's terrible. Okay. Whew. All right. So I obviously I love Gerald. Thank you so much, Papa Gerald, for giving us this beautiful tradition and helping connect thousands of people together through it. Wow. Um, however, it, in my opinion, Gerald was not the best writer. Um, and he also had some issues with never citing his work. <laughs> I know I keep saying that over and over again, but it's a huge problem in my world when I'm reading things. Um, so the difficulty of understanding his writing, the number of tangents that he would go on, and then um, not citing his work, that's one of my biggest issues with that. So I think it's important 
if you are Wiccan or are desiring to be initiated in an initiatory path of Wicca, to read Gerald Gardner's works, <clears throat> but to keep in mind that there are few of us that are sitting around being like, damn, that's a good piece of work, <laughs> you know, but it's important to understand it in its historical context. So what it meant when he was writing that at that time um, and where he got his information and how he was just all kind of putting it together. And yeah. So You're nicer one. than I am. I don't even think people need to read it. Like the meaning out of the two, witchcraft today and the meaning, meaning is the worst. Witchcraft today shines when he talks about rituals, you know, like when he puts a little ritual in there yeah, usually yeah. like the yule ritual for instance written by doreen valet which is probably why it's the best <laughs> part of that book i'm sorry but yeah uh, yeah i'm oh, books are awful they're great little historical pieces but they're not good all right number three all right number three and at least this one's dead too <laughs> But um, Wicca, A Guide for the Solitary Practitioner by Scott Cunningham. Okay. All right. Hear me out. I'm with you. I'm with you. you. So I both um, really have a place in my heart for that particular piece of work. But just because I love it for that reason does not mean that I think it's any good. Um, Now. And I, you know, when we're talking about the crap test, something that's relevant and current and things of that sort, that book does not fit the needs now. Now, admittedly, it was the very first book that I read on Wicca. A friend lent it to me, you know, back when I was a teen or whatever. And I ate it up. Oh, my God. It's exactly what I needed to read at that time in my life. But I was also like a preteen, you know, and I couldn't discern the difference between good information, not good information. It was also my first source on Wicca, aside from the internet and GeoCity sites and stuff like that, AOL forums and chat rooms. Um, so it's meaningful in that regard. But if I were to take that book and put it up against books that are being published now and even books that came before it, in my opinion, it would not hold the same level of rigor or um, much else against those books. And hopefully nobody hates me for that. Again, love Scott Cunningham, very important book. I just personally would not say that it was, it's a good source on Wicca. Do you not call Imbolc the Snowdrop Festival? Um, I, I do not, Jason. Do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I I reread that book recently for a blog post called Books Agingly, Scott Cunningham. Oh. And it really is. It's not fair because I, I, you know, I think, what, five or six years after that was published? Because I think he would have updated it, and I think it would be much better. And he's True. a terrific writer, but it has not aged well. Really stuck just in 1989, but as someone who's read a lot, I know how long it takes for these books to get published. I mean, it's really in like 1986, 1987. It has a new age 
bits to it, which really did not age well or kind of continue on in witchcraft circles, especially. Yeah, and I'm with you and name too because as I said, I think it would be better today if he was still alive. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, not only is it better when you're alive that you can defend your own work, but yeah, it also gives you the opportunity to update it too. <laughs> Um, yeah, for certain. Well, I think he would have updated it, you know, like, yeah, like the truth about witchcraft today, which Llewellyn still publishes and sells a, you know, shit ton of, which should be called the truth about witchcraft 1985. <laughs> yeah, I still get the image of the chick with like the beautiful permed hair on the front cover. Didn't she have like a giant cell phone? But I do remember shoulder pads. <laughs> so. She had shoulder pads. Handbag. Mm, that's but what it was. I knew it was a big purse. Accessory. Yeah, and it was just a stock photo. I mean, but to me, I know that's like a lawyer, witch. you know. I thought that she was probably a real witch and the person <laughs> in the world. And oh I'd man, go to a festival I, and I'd meet her, but no, it never happened. Her psychic shield. I mean, there was no difference between where her psychic shield began and her shoulder pads ended. So. <laughs> Yeah. The 80s were a good time. They were. Yeah. What little yeah. I saw of them. <laughs> the height of hair metal, baby. That's the best. Hell yes. Yeah, I'm talking chunky jewelry, weird flashy colors, you know, parachute pants. The fun doesn't stop. Uh, yeah, I had a few pair of parachutes in middle school. You know, that was nice. a fad that lasted about nine months, you know. <laughs> Even as a kid, you know, after about nine months, you were like, this is over. <laughs> and we're kind of embarrassed that you had these pants. Oh, yeah. That's like um, me when I was uh, a preteen. I had a pair of Jinkos. So, you know. I don't, I don't even know what those are. Oh, okay. Well, okay. They were these pants that were so wide-legged and they had so many fucking pockets. But they were so wide-legged um, that they would, like, couple, cover your shoe two times over. And I had a pair of Jinko shorts that my brother had and only wore for, like, a hot minute. And then I was like, yeah, I want those. And I don't know why. I still, to this day, don't know why. Um, but I wore them thinking that I was hot shit, you know, Jinkos. Yeah, the, the fuck youth, so to speak. Before... <laughs> Before I let you go, because usually the show's about an hour, but this has been fun. So I'm thinking, eh, we'll just do another yeah. 10 minutes if we want. Oh, yeah. My my rye whiskey is not yet empty, so it's fine. Yeah. So and we're, we're, I only had like, you know, half of my bottle of wine, so we're great. Yeah, that's good. White or, white or red? Oh, I'm doing red. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon. It's my Ooh. favorite. Um, yeah, very nice. Yeah, come and visit Ari and I. We'll go to wine country. We'll take oh, you to our yeah. favorite wineries. You can stay at our house once you know once all this is over. But yes, that would be great. We're we're cab drinkers too, so that would I would be enjoy fun. that. And yeah. I also like whiskey and bourbon, so there'd be more than one thing that we could potentially drink. There are eighty bottles of whiskey at our house. <laughs> I'm not, that's not an exaggeration. That is the truth. We oh, are crap. collectors. 
So, you know, <laughs> I collect books and I collect whiskey. Sadly, one of them is more long-lasting than the other. I so know. As we, re- as we record the show tonight, we're at it's December 10th, so we're getting close to Yule. How are your Yule celebrations going to change in oh. the era of COVID-19? You know, honestly, this has been a very challenging year, and I, I'm not pretending to speak for everyone or anyone aside from myself. I can only go by what I've heard. And with regards to my coven, so um, me and my uh, magical partner, we lead a, a coven together. And we've only been leading this coven together for a couple of years, and then COVID hit. So right around the time that we felt like we were getting our jam together, we were really understanding, working well together as a group. We had really built this egregore, COVID hit. And so we've not been able to practice together as a coven as we normally would. Normally we meet every two weeks (laughs) and on Sabbaths. Um, And it has switched to being online. And I can speak for myself and certainly based on what our students have been talking about is that we feel extremely disconnected from one another and being online really fucking blows. Um, So Yule this year, we decided to do kind of like a a secret Santa thing via elfster.com online. I'm not promoting that and I'm not getting paid for this shit, but um, where we kind of like draw a name out of the online hat and then you get that person's name, you're like, oh, because you know this person so well, you'll be able to buy them a gift and mail it to them. And then, you know, on the Sabbath, we're going to get online and unwrap our gifts together and, you know, enjoy a glass of wine online and talk about the things that we're doing individually on Yule. But that's how our coven practice has changed. Um, I think for myself and for the individuals in our group that had a solitary practice before ever coming to Gardnerian Wicca, we can fall back on that uh, because we had a strong base in those practices. And so it took me a couple of months of like some inner tantrums of not being able to practice with my group to be like, okay, fucking fine. I will... (laughs) I'll lean back on the practice that I had before and I'll try to enhance that in absence of meeting with my coven. But for the individuals that did not have a solid or uh, existing solitary practice before coming to our coven, they are feeling it harder than those that are not. So that is how it has changed for us for Yule. It's, it's online, <laughs> you know? Yeah, what about- obviously. It's it's just so hard, you know? I'm, for me, Yule is my favorite of all the Sabbaths. It's the one I get most excited about. You know, we have two nights. We have two covens. We have two nights of, you know, Yule toasting and candle lighting and all that and have it taken away from us. And I understand why we're not doing it. And it's the, it's the right call in we're in California. We're not even allowed to visit with other households, even in backyards. Wow. And being okay. socially distanced. Yeah. It's t- 
I mean, so I understand it, but it's just so hard, especially as we approach nine months. This has been a conversation tonight. I have loved this. This has been so fun. <laughs> I hope it was fun for you. I I thought it, it was great. Yeah, I've very much enjoyed myself. You know, I wasn't sure what to expect. You never know what you'll get asked as a librarian, but that's half the fun, frankly. It's like, man, what what question am I going to get today? And there's always something that will stump me for a while. So, you know. Because I'm yeah. a terrible promoter and my values are poor. No one really listens to my podcast, but I'm good at it. It's always easy to do like the conversations flow kind of like the whiskey flows at our house so if people want to learn more about you online where should they go yeah you know um if you want to interact with me on social media come find me on instagram so i am the gardenarian librarian i am on twitter um but you know what i'm not active on there so if you want to chat with me that is not the way to go hit me up on instagram I will be happy to have a conversation with you. Uh, you are also welcome to check me out on Pathios, Pathios Pagan. I am known as the Gardnerian Librarian. You'll find my blog there. And uh, yeah. This has been Ash, who I've been talking with tonight, the Gardnerian Librarian. Say that five times. It will put a smile on your face. This has been a terrific conversation. We've had a great time. Next week, I'll be joined by Michael Hughes the man who started all of the bind Trump magic. So that will be fun, especially now Trump has fucking lost. Anyways, <laughs> Jason, this has been Bitches Whiskey, and, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to Ash, my guest tonight. This has been really great. See you next time. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>